Welcome to Channeled, our podcast about creating more together. Today, we're talking with Brenda Barker-Scott, an organizational development professional with over 20 years of experience teaching and consulting in both the private and public sectors. She's a groundbreaker with a passion for designing humanistic organizations and has led a number of ambitious system-wide organizational efforts with governments and the private sector. Welcome to the podcast, Brenda. Well, thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here again. Wonderful. So uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about organizational culture and design in our new normal. This is a very strange time and a very uncertain time for everyone and, and particularly mm-hmm. organizations. Um, and, and certainly the pandemic has really resulted in a very different work environment. So many people are working at home, they're isolated from their colleagues. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how that's affected the world of work. Yes, yes. Um, Yes, it's a profound change, isn't it? You know, overnight people were sort of thrown from the office into their at-home offices with very little sort of attention paid to what it means um, to our social connections uh, at work. There's a a view of the organization as both a social and a technical system. And what that means is that there's a real recognition that every organization has a technical system. That's how we do our work. Um, But there's also a social system. And that's, you know, the nature of the work, the nature of the relationships amongst people, leadership, and how people contribute. So we're now working online and with little attention to the social system and how that needs to, you know, have a symbiotic re- relationship with the, with the technical system. So that's why we're hearing people saying, um, you know, maybe I'm more productive from a technical point of view in terms of the work that I'm doing. But from a social point of view, I don't feel as connected. I feel lonely. You know, I don't feel the energy um, that I would normally get from the office. And I'm missing uh, those social relationships because we just don't have them right now. Yeah. So that's, a, that's been a real profound uh, shift for, for folks. I think particularly to those those chance moments of, you know, I don't know how to do this and, you know, leaning over someone's shoulder and saying, do this or or what if we did it this way? You know, those chance encounters for discovery. Yes, yes. So this is a very, very important point uh, that you're making. When we think about it, there's really three types of work and I'm oversimplifying, but there's some work that you actually have to be present for because you need to do something with someone and you need to have that, you know, tight physical interaction. There is work that is independent, and so journalists, writers, poets, um, people who sell things online, um, they can work independently, um, and they don't need to interact with their colleagues. And so a significant percentage of the workforce are knowledge workers. And what do knowledge workers do for a living? Um, They think for a living, they problem solve, they communicate, they, um, uh, they innovate. Uh, with each other. And we know a lot about um, how knowledge workers work. And so some of their work is solitary. And so they need to be working independently, head down by themselves, doing their own thinking. But then as you say, there's an awful lot of uh, what we call sort of short bursts of problem solving where knowledge workers turn to each other if they can see each other and if they're close by and they'll ask questions, um, they'll offer input, Uh, and they'll move into a little small uh, huddle around problem solving. And that also comes from hearing each other. And so, you know, two colleagues might be talking, they hear each other, another colleague knows something about that, they might join the huddle. And so they spend 10 minutes in a breakout room, they write a few things on the flip chart or on the whiteboard, 
do some sketching and prototyping, and then they're back to their desks working independently again. Um, and that's a huge part of knowledge work. So the, I call it peer helping right. and peer outreach, asking questions and, 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 uh, and offering input. And so your work is not just your own work. You also are making a contribution to others. And that's a, that's a big part of knowledge work. And then the third part of knowledge work is that we, um, we sometimes get together and we must work together. So we're in working sessions, we're on project teams where we um, you know, have a concerted you know, um, uh, a time where we are thinking together, learning together, prototyping together, experimenting together. So these are three types of work that just happen fluidly in a knowledge worker's day. And it's really hard to emulate those three types of activities um, online. Yes, well, right? particularly if technology is not playing along or you know, yes. people have varying internet speeds and... Yes, it can, it can cause uh, disruptions, absolutely. So what, what we've found in terms of research around knowledge work, so what helps knowledge workers to understand what's happening in the workplace and how they can contribute, one is just osmosis or awareness. Like you're in the office, you hear things, you pick up on um, what's happening in terms of work and you understand where you can help. And so it's really hard to do that online, that osmosis. The other piece is space. And so there's a lot of work in the area of space management. And what researchers have found is that if people are proximate so that they're sitting by each other, and that's why we have all kinds of work hubs and neighborhoods where people are close by and they can see each other, they can hear each other, and they can tap into and understand when each other are, when they're available so that they can do that outreach. That just happens fluidly. So space is really important to be able to sort of see, hear, understand if someone's available, and then be able to move into one of those breakout spaces. And then the third part about space is just as we were chatting about earlier, um, those serendipitous interactions that occur in shared spaces where people are meeting by the water cooler, by the coffee uh, machine, at the cafeteria, where they're just chit-chatting and they, they learn about projects or opportunities that are happening that they would not have known about. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very hard to do that online. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know if we know how to do that. I know there are tools like Slack that are starting to provide that kind of seamless interactivity, but we're in the early stages of the tools being able to enable that kind of work right now. You mentioned, you know, when you can see somebody, you can see if they're available. Mm -hmm. I know for myself right now, uh, you know, I'm on Zoom, on Microsoft Teams, and people just ring you up. They yeah. can't tell. You know, you can put your little I'm not available, but not everybody watches for that. Yes. And so you, you're constantly being interrupted unless yes. you can turn everything off. So there, it's a different process, whereas I could see you across the room and see that you're on the phone with somebody or you're, you, know, you really are concentrating. The, my research question was, what are the elements that make up a collaborative um, organization? And what I both observed and what people told me is that they really don't want to interrupt others, right? Um, people are very conscientious. And so they want to make sure that somebody is available. And so they talked at length about, you know, if I can just, you know, see the person and I catch, you know, the corner of their eye, I can, you know, do a little wave and basically find out if they're available. And if they're available, then I know that they're accessible and they're open to 
a conversation. If they've got their head down or their earphones on, I know not to bother them yeah. uh, right now. And that seemed to be really, really important to people. Um, and as you say, it's really hard to manage that um, online. And away yeah. from each other. Yeah. I think that a lot of people probably thought that working from home was like a dream come true, like something yeah. you always wanted to do. But I think recent surveys seem to kind of suggest that not everybody is that happy. Yes. Uh, it's really interesting what's kind of surfacing. There are really sort of three problems that people have identified from working at home. One is loneliness, yeah. right? They're just feeling that they're not connected um, with their peers and, to, and also to the workplace. The second element is just procrastination. And so getting in some kind of a rhythm uh, for your day so that you have rituals in terms of how you spend your time and so that you would you force yourself just like when you're going to the office your day is fairly structured that you create some kind of structure for yourself at home so that you're not putting off that important work. What research suggests is that if you can create almost like little sprints during your day or segments where I'm going to do this project work you know, from, uh, you know, 10 in the morning until 11.30, then that's a segment. So I think organizations are becoming really good at creating some rituals during the day. So we start every day with a stand-up, and we hear from all the, you know, our team members what they're doing, um, what kind of help they need from us, um, what kind of progress we're making, and then we have our sprints. Um, it's important to build in breaks and, and lunch breaks and exercise breaks, really, really important. And then to sort of have a time at the end of the day where you're closed, right? And so by 5.30, 6 o'clock at night, work is done. Because that's the third problem with working at home is that work and life blend together. Yeah. And people might just feel that they are continuously on the job. Yes. <laughs> and so those, those boundaries around the workday and the rituals for how we work are really important. I would imagine space too, because not everybody has a home office. Right? Yes. You may be working at the kitchen table or, yes. you know, and, and if the kids are also at home, then you may be working beside new colleagues. And so people, um, they're working in their spare bedrooms or wherever they can find space. It's funny, I, when I left the house this morning, um, my son was in one office, his girlfriend was in another spare office, my husband was in the bedroom, everybody was working <laughs> independently. Um, I don't know where I'm going to work when I go home. Um, but if this continues, it's going to have profound implications for both how we design homes and apartments and the choices that people make. Because uh, right now we're tolerating it. I also think that if this continues, people are going to migrate from the cities to smaller centers because they won't need to be paying the big rents and there'll be opportunities you know, for smaller centers to welcome more people who are working online. I think a silver lining is I like it when I'm on a Zoom call and somebody's kids come to the door and ask for you know, a drink of milk or somebody needs to let their cat out. <laughs> I guess the cat's meowing. I, I think it's humanizing us. Yes. And and I think that that's important. So it's it's creating a sense of connectivity to, you know, the person as opposed to the role that they play within the organization. And I think that can be quite powerful. Yeah. yeah. But for how long, I think, is going to be my question. You know, my back is out because I haven't got proper seating. All of that. That's right. So we're going to go, you know, from this place where we're tolerating it to we're going to have expectations. Working at home is going to be expensive in terms of making sure that we've got the right desks, the right, you know, ergonomically designed chairs, the right screens, 
quiet spaces, all of that. And positive workplace culture, it must be difficult now for leaders to keep people, to keep the culture alive. Yes. Uh, the way that I think about it, I, through my research and my, my practice and teaching, um, I've designed a framework for connectivity and, and collaboration in the workplace. It's, uh, I call it the circle of connectivity and be happy to send it to anyone, but it just defines the, how we need to feel a sense of connectivity to our workplaces. And I think about it in four different ways. And so the first way is a connectivity to the organization itself, to the core purpose and mandate, to the value system, and to the big projects and priorities. And so we need to have that sense of connectivity and belongingness to the organization as a whole. And that's much easier to accomplish when you are going into a shared space every day where you see your senior leaders. Um, you have opportunities to go to summits and meetings where you're talking about strategy and values and you're part of conversations where you're continuously taking a look at the priorities and assessing how you're working around your values. And so what organizational leaders are going to need to do is they're going to need to think about how do we create a sense of belongingness and identity virtually. Mm. Right? How do we do that? There's experimentation going on, but I think leaders need to understand it's really important. It's like your lifeline to the organization. Right? It's what connects you to the organization as a whole. And so what can leaders do? Well, I know of one organization where the CEO phoned every single solitary employee, you know, right after people moved to working at home, just to say hello. Uh, to say we're doing okay as an organization and to find out how people were doing. That sense of connectivity, that's all going to be very, very, very important from that sense of belongingness. Another key element of the culture is the social glue that holds people together, that social fabric. And what I found with my research is that, you know, the very best collaborative and innovative organizations, they build a social fabric. It's not, it's, they build it intentionally. And they do that in a whole bunch of different ways. Uh, one is they just hold all kinds of um, summits and cer ceremonies and clubs and opportunities just to bring people together so that they can meet each other outside of work. Like just so that we can create um, you know, a sense of familiarity. So when I go into these organizations, people are intermingling across departments, across units in the gym. They're going for, for walk and talks. You know, it's a social scene. The other really important thing, apart from that sense of belongingness that we talked about, um, is the sense of safety and trust that is built into the social fabric. And that we help each other beyond our roles. And so it's about the contribution that we collectively make. And so there's this climate of helpfulness. And that climate of helpfulness is built from uh, chit-chat. So people are co-located and they just chat with each other. And what did they say? They said, because we know each other, I'm more willing to reach out to those folks when I need them. And I feel more comfortable about offering what I know if I'm overhearing something. Yeah. Right? And so it just paves the way uh, for working together. The other big thing that you're seeing in organizations right now is that people are on all kinds of teams with different players. And the, the, team, the teams are fluid and the boundaries are fluid. So it enables teams to get up to speed a whole lot faster when they already know of each other. 
Right. And there's that social ease. Yeah, that yeah. social ease. So trust is built from two things. One is a trust in your competence. I know that I can rely on you. I know that you can help me. And I know that you're accessible to help me. So that's one type of trust. The other is that safety kind of trust that we just talked about, that social safety where I know that um, if I ask you a question, you're going to treat me with respect, that you are going to um, create a, that safe space for me to brainstorm with you and to ask lots of questions. I mean, I'm asking you because I don't know and I, and I want to learn. So you create that climate. So organizations that support that climate of helpfulness through their protocols, through the leadership role modeling, through um, expectations that people reach out to each other and that they help each other. Social network research has found that there are actual, Rob Cross calls them energizers in the organization. And these are people that attract other folks because you meet with them and they make you feel bigger. You know what I mean, right? And so these are folks that really help to spread that social climate of helpfulness and that's absolutely important to the social fabric and to connectivity and innovation and collaboration, right? Yeah. How do you build that at home? Yeah. And so I think that eventually, I think right now if the organization has it, we're leveraging it like it's been built and now we're we're leveraging that those relationships and that social capital that has been built but how long will it last if we do have people who are working at home on a regular basis how do we bring them together so that they can actually be together socialize together have a beer together you know just interact with each other socially as well as around the work right mm -hmm. um so that they can plan together and innovate together and they they get that people fix i think that's going to be really really important one thing i think is that what we can do is just building coffee breaks brown bag lunches and reserve a few minutes at the beginning or end of every meeting just to chat and connect and check in with each other you know in terms of how we're doing it strikes me too that companies that have already done this, so before the pandemic, the companies that had social structures like that will find it easier to maintain some of that mm -hmm. because we already know, but the companies who have not had that in place may now be struggling. Yes. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I can tell you, like, when I would go into offices to do my research where organizations had this, you could feel it in the air. And people would tell me, even though I have to commute, and my commute might be 30 or 40 minutes every day, I, when I'm in this organization, I actually choose to come in because of the positive energy and feeling and friendship that's here, yeah. right? And this is what collaboration and innovation is based on, right? This kind of connectivity. So organizations who don't have that, well, it's gonna be interesting. People aren't gonna to wanna to come back to the office because there's nothing to come back to the office for. So it's going to be really important to, to create this glue. Organizations, generally speaking, they need to do two things well. They need to execute well um, on proven strategies and spread what they know. Um, but they also need to innovate. And we all know that in today's day and age, if you're not innovating and adapting to the new world order, you won't be relevant, right? And so innovation requires glue the social glue where people want to help each other, contribute beyond their role, and learn together, because that's hard work. 
yeah. right? I think that eventually what we're going to need is we're going to need tools where we can actually, in you know, real time, create prototypes where people can contribute to those prototypes and they grow and we can see how they are evolving and really good you know, tools for brainstorming and thinking together. And there's no doubt that we'll develop those tools, but right now we just don't have them. I've heard that a number of larger organizations are now sort of thinking that they may stay virtual, mm -hmm. uh, become a work-from-home environment. What do you think about that? Yeah. Again, I think that if, you, if your work is such that you have people doing independent tasks, that it can work really well. And then you're going to have to solve the, for the problem of loneliness, procrastination, and the blurring that we talked about in terms of work and life. There's a, a study out of Stanford that took place with um, an organization called, I think it was C-Trip in, uh, in China, where the CEO a number of years ago decided to hold an experiment. Okay, so they're an online travel agency. People pretty much work independently. So the experiment was, I'd like half of you um, to work at home and let's just see how well it works. People were randomly assigned to come into the office or to work at home. And lo and behold, what did they find after you know a period of time is they found that the people who were working from home were 19% more productive um, than their colleagues who were working in the office, but they were very lonely. Uh -huh. And when they were offered to continue to work at home, and even though some of them had 40, 45 minute commutes, half of them said, no, I want to come back into the office because they miss their colleagues. Yeah. And they miss that social connection. So I, I think what we're going to see is if we do have a migration to people working from home, then if it's um, f for both the loneliness and for the innovation, we're going to have to bring people together in summits, in training sessions, in large group meetings, where it will then become a luxury <laughs> to come <laughs> into the office and be together right. uh, when it's possible to do so, so that we can get our people fixed. I know what some offices are doing right now is that they're having the, you know, they have the A team and the B team and the A team comes in Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and the B team comes in Tuesday, Thursday, and then they switch um, so that you have fewer people in the office um, on any given day, but you come in from a team point of view. So I think there's going to be all kinds of experimentation. Yeah. Um, and so I think the question is, how do we preserve the productivity that might come from giving people opportunities to work quietly at home and also how do we create this sense of belongingness and social climate social foundation uh, where people want to contribute beyond their role to the higher goals of the of the organization yeah so probably some hybrid models really need to be developed here i, I think we're going to get a lot better at our online tools i'm sure there's going to be an explosion of, of research and innovation and I still think at some points we're gonna want to bring people together to laugh together to um, to eat together and to work together um, so that they get that cohesion benefit and then we can leverage that, you know, they can go away and, and work at home. From a design point of view, I know a lot of offices have moved to sort of that open workspace. They, mm -hmm. you know, you see lots of pictures of the long work table with people mm -hmm. sitting beside each other. Yeah, the cafeteria other. style. Yeah, family style. Yeah, yeah and that yeah. Um, strikes me as not being safe anymore right now. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you think that will change? Well, there's so many issues right now posed with just being in a building together. Like just even coming in the front door, <laughs> people yeah. congregate getting on an elevator. It's only two people to an elevator 
imagine in these great big office buildings, how in heaven's name are we going to get even to their offices in a safe way? And then, and then the whole notion of seating. I really believe that if people come together, like if people are working together, even though we may have the very best intentions to be socially distant from each other, as humans, we're going to interact. We're going to be entering the doorway at the same time. We're going to be grabbing a cup of coffee at the same time. There are going to be instances where we're close by and we're not at, at the appropriate social distance. So I think that once we bring people together, we have to feel like it's truly safe. We have to have a vaccine. I don't think we'll be back safely together until then because what's the benefit of coming into the office if we're separate mm -hmm. together? Yeah. I come into the office from a very pragmatic point of view if we're once we come back together we need to be together <laughs> yeah what are some of the most important things that leaders can do right now to to keep that positive workplace culture going and to keep people confident yeah so I just think there's they have to over communicate you know as I said earlier I think it's so important to continue to build that sort of social fabric and culture sense of belongingness and in addition to that I think our leaders need to be just absolutely humble in that they are listening and they are learning and they are experimenting and they are trying with all kinds of new ways of working new technologies they just kinda need to step into the space of experimentation and role model it for people that it's okay to be learning, right? And to be trying, and we're not gonna be perfect, but we'll just keep getting better as we go. So leaders who like to work in their offices need to really get out there. They need to have an online presence. They need to be interacting with people. Thank you for speaking with me today, Brenda. You are so welcome, it's my pleasure. This is Nancy Corrigan, and you've been listening to Channeled, our podcast. 